Back in November, my producers and I went to Puerto Rico. It was two months after Hurricane Maria. Power was unreliable, piles of debris were pretty much everywhere, and lots of people were thinking of leaving the island forever. In April, we went back. This looks, I mean, this is a real change since yeah, when we were better. last here. It's, <laughs> it's better. better. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's good for yeah. us. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to a repeat episode of Marketplace Weekend based on reporting from Puerto Rico in November 2017 and April of this year. And that woman you heard me with is Michelle Rodriguez. Leaving the island wasn't an option for her. She's devoted to her work there, running a community center for children in Sabana Seca, about 15 miles from San Juan. We met back in November, and I wanted to check in with her and others we spoke with. I'm doing better. I think um, time helps uh, to to um, maybe gain regain forces and um, get a, a a more um, hopeful perspective. Things are definitely improving at Niños de Nueva Esperanza. The library is open and more kids are there. Still, Rodriguez says they all have a long way to go. We focus on on trying to not be um, like too much optimistic, like uh, to give uh, hopes that are not uh, real, but to focus on the things that we can control. So in that area, we are being optimistic. A short drive from Rodriguez in the center is Juan Orta's convenience store in Toabaja. On our last visit, Orta was keeping the lights on with generators, which set him back $100 a day in fuel. He's got power now from the grid, but he's still spending his own money to stay afloat, which adds up to $75,000 so far. Plus, he says sales are going down because many clients have left and prices are going up. Orta explains that since there's no real agricultural production at the moment, things have gotten more expensive. For example, the bananas that used to cost him $18 for 40 pounds now cost 60. Luis Martinez doesn't grow bananas, but he does work on a farm, a dairy farm in Atillo, about 40 miles west of Juan Orta's convenience store in Toabaja. Now, back when we met in November, 800 cows were housed at the Vacaria Seba del Mar. It's a dairy with ocean views. And now there are about 1,000 animals on the 220-acre site. They're not sick anymore. New structures have been built to provide much-needed shade, but at the cost of a quarter of a million dollars. And, yeah, the investment's paying off. The livestock's doing pretty well, says Martinez. They've gained weight. Production is up to 18,000 liters a day. But there's a downside, and that's the price that dairies get for their milk, around 70 cents now compared to 82 cents before the storm. And then there's the worry of another natural disaster with hurricane season around the corner. A short drive from Vacarea Seba del Mar is Glorimar Rivera's house. It's turquoise and yellow concrete, and she's building an addition upstairs. Rivera lives here with her parents and young son. And a couple months ago, power lines draped from fallen poles right outside her house. Now they're gone, and she's doing better, but power is still a concern. Estoy bien. Estoy bien después de todo. 
acoplándome nuevamente después del revolú, después de la tormenta. People don't see things the same way, Rivera says, because you never know when the lights will go out. She's working more now, mostly night shifts at Walmart, but she says she's still living day by day. Michelle, Juan, Luis, and Glorimar are just a few of the people we met on the island. They're trying to carve out something resembling normal in the recovery from Maria, navigating school closures, power problems, and housing. And today, we're going to bring you an update on the island's economy, as well as conversations with the people in charge. Puerto Rico will get more than $18 billion from the Department of Housing and Urban Development to rebuild housing and infrastructure. The money will be divvied up into grants and doled out, a process that could take us into 2019. In the meantime, people are still living life post-hurricane. Before the storm hit, thousands of people in Puerto Rico lived in informal housing, places built in flood zones or without permits or a deed. And that's made getting money to rebuild really hard. Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen set off across San Juan to learn more. Luis Malave's house in the San Juan Barrio, Israel, was never really big. But to him, those plywood walls were home. Then Maria came. You gotta go through the, all the trash over here. And today, to get to what's left, you climb over its former self. A four-foot-high pile of rotting plywood and snap tables. I started living over here in 2002. It was my house, but I, I wasn't the owner there. Malave has an informal arrangement to stay on the land, but no lease, no insurance, and no FEMA funding for repairs. He sleeps in what's still standing, a single room with a blue tarp for a roof and a piece of tin for a door. It rained maybe 12 hours ago, but a bucket still catches drips from a wooden beam up top. Well, you have to prove ownership to be able to get the FEMA help. That's Michelle Sugden Castillo, a consultant with housing nonprofits in Puerto Rico. People with no title or lease can submit a written statement to FEMA about their situation, and FEMA says they'll consider them. We've seen that there's a high denial of FEMA cases. FEMA has gotten over 1.1 million housing assistance applications from people living in all situations. But only 40 percent, two of every five, get approved. FEMA says that can be because of multiple applications from the same household and people need to meet certain homeowner standards. But even when assistance comes through, for some, it's not enough. Orlando Ortiz lives in another part of San Juan, Via Palmera. He knows all about life with a blue tarp for a roof. He's lived this way for months. He knows the light and heat that flow through the tarp, making the house like a blue oven during the day. And he knows the bats and pigeons that get in at night. But what he doesn't know is he got more money than most to fix the place. They gave me $6,200. Ortiz got $6,200 from FEMA, and their average housing award in Puerto Rico is $2,700. Still, he estimates it'll cost over $12,000 to fix the roof. I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen for Marketplace. Seven months after Maria, if you look out across some areas of San Juan, you can still see tons of blue tarps in place of roofs. Fifteen miles over, the municipality of Toa Baja was hit even harder. 
Eh, mi nombre es Betito Márquez, alcalde de Toa Baja. Betito Márquez is mayor of Toa Baja. The town is slated to get a chunk of that $18 billion in HUD funding. Básicamente lo que más necesita la gente es la recuperación de, su, de sus viviendas. He says of the area's 27,000 houses, more than 15,000 were ruined by flooding and winds. With limited affordable housing available, Marquez says his government will need to work with communities to figure out what's next. Well, right now we're in a much better position than what we were, uh, obviously, a couple months ago. That's Ricardo Alvarez-Diaz. He's an architect and used to be head of the Puerto Rico Builders Association. I asked him if the HUD money should be used to build people living in informal houses, new ones. Not houses, but communities. Hmm. If you develop a community, you're developing, hopefully, homes, retail, schools, and so forth. So you're really focusing on quality of life more than only housing. What's standing in the way of that happening, do you think? Political will. That's my opinion. Really? Makes income communities work. But it requires political will. Why? Because when you're going to relocate families, you need to educate them. You need to make sure they understand that this is a matter of safety. That if you choose to stay there, you're putting yourself and your family at risk. One of the things I'm thinking of, though, is if you say to people, oh, the Roseo administration wants to help you move to some other place, they say, I don't trust that guy. I don't, I don't, I don't believe them. I agree. For me, a government is not the one that should do the job. The government should be a facilitator. Their responsibility lies on the community, private sector, and the NGOs. You know, if someone were just to step back and say, why is affordable housing such an issue in Puerto Rico? What would you say? Why? Puerto Rico is so unique. It's a place of contradictions. Puerto Rico has the highest ownership of homes in all the U.S. 69% of the people own their homes here. There's only 500,000 mortgages. So people own their properties. But just because you have homes doesn't mean they're the right homes. A lot of the units that are there are worth demolishing. They can be reused. We have to do whatever we can to create not homes. I want to stress that. To create communities. So when the people come back here, and they will come back, they will want to stay. But all of these things still have to happen. The plans have to be approved. The units have to be built. How long does the federal government and the island government have before people give up and say, forget it, I'm staying in Florida forever? The reason people leave the island is not necessarily because they don't have an adequate home yet. The reason people leave the island is because they don't have an adequate opportunity when it comes to jobs. So let's go back to your question. What do we do now? Well, every time you look at an economy, the thing that takes them out of the recession, it's home building. We are getting a great opportunity. And I say this with a lot of empathy because some people and some families have lost it all. And I have to say with empathy because some people have lost their lives. But this is the last big chance we're going to get to hopefully do better, sustainable, economic Puerto Rico. That six years from now, when those monies stop coming, people don't leave again. That was architect Ricardo Alvarez-Diaz. On my first visit to Puerto Rico last November, everyone, and I mean everyone I spoke with on the island, had something to say about power, or rather the lack thereof. 
Like two months ago, we got power for two or three days, and then we bought inventory, we started, and then we lost power again. Estoy sin luz, sin agua, sin teléfono. Yeah, because the air condition, I mean, and you want to watch TV, I mean, once I go home later, there's nothing but heat and mosquitoes. When Hurricane Maria hit, it wiped out electricity across the island. Back in November, many people in places still had sketchy service. And so I actually got to the airport and the power was out. The airport, somewhere power had actually been restored, but then the grid went down. So, of course, I, I was sad. Because this guy, it's his role to restore power to the island. I'm Colonel John Lloyd. He's normally the Pittsburgh District Commander for the Army Corps of Engineers, but here in Puerto Rico... I serve as the Task Force Power Restoration Commander. That means bringing in 62,000 poles and 6,500 miles of electrical wire. That's from New York to almost Russia, then millions of other components to the system. Early one morning, I stopped by the Army Corps of Engineers Command Center based at PREPA, the embattled Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority in San Juan. About 20 people sat around the room, typing and speaking quietly. Some were wearing bright red jackets with the Army Corps insignia on the back. Others were in military fatigues. Almost every wall was covered with reminders of how many days since Hurricanes Irma and Maria, handwritten thank you letters from children, and maps, like this giant one of the island showing where the power lines should be. So it's broken down by transmission lines uh, in yellow here. And that's 230 kV lines. I started by asking Colonel Lloyd what Puerto Rico's power grid was like even before Maria. The infrastructure uh, was unstable before uh, Irma and Maria. So you had a very unstable grid, a lot of power outages before the storm. And now you have a Cat 5 hurricane that comes through and rips through the island uh, and causes extreme damage on the transmission lines. And for people who are, are new to thinking about this, transmission lines are what moves the power from, from the plant to... From the plant, uh, those transmission lines carry power, and then it goes to substations along the way and continues to, to step it down until it's uh, brought to your house. You see most of the transmission lines were damaged. Uh, there's two lines coming out of the south to the north that were still... Uh, working out right now. But once those lines are completed, we think we'll have a good transmission loop and have some stabilization. When someone is out doing that, who is physically doing that work? Where are those engineers coming from? Where are those linemen coming from? Obviously, uh, the whitefish issue has been a big one in the headlines, but like, who's the manpower? So, uh, for the Corps of Engineers, so we were given specifically the mission from FEMA, uh, and we serve as FEMA's lead engineer. Uh, we were then given the mission at the end of September, uh, a mission assignment to, to kind of lead uh, the, the planning and design. We have our own contractors that work for us, uh, and we coordinate this very closely with PREPA. My understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you all are handling, what, about 70% of it, and PREPA's got about 30? Is that... Is that the right yeah, figure? Yeah, I, I think that's initially what uh, we kind of saw. 70-30, I think, was a good estimate. It may be more 60-40 now, and it, it kind of changes as we get more boots on the ground. As you mentioned, this is an island. Where is all of this stuff coming from? And have you been impacted by the Jones Act? Um, so let me answer your first question. So um, most of the equipment is being manufactured in the United States. So poles, uh, wire, 
conductors, insulators, you name it, whatever it is, uh, we have priority to receive that. The, the bottom line with that is though there just is a shortage in the United States with those components based on um, all the damage that was done during the other hurricanes. So it's been difficult to get that manufactured, get it in the pipeline, and then loaded on a ship and brought here. One of the things that I'm really interested in is the standard to which you can rebuild things. Under the law, FEMA has essentially dictated things can be restored to what they were pre-disaster. Are you making improvements to the grid or are you just allowed to restore them because they weren't in great shape pre-storm? The mission assignment uh, gives us direction to do temporary repairs to pre-storm conditions. Um, So that's fairly specific. The the fact is this, is that all the work that's going to be done is going to be done to standard and to code. We know a lot of the work before the storm uh, wasn't a standard, wasn't a code. So, of course, going out there uh, just by doing the work, it's going to be brought up to whatever the current code is uh, for that work to be done. So, in one sense, uh, we're bringing it back to better than it was, uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to be back to that pre-storm level of of condition, but just better standard, um, to code, uh, whatever that looks like. How much of an impact did some of the lack of maintenance have on the lines around the island, and how much has that impacted your work? I would say significantly uh, in a lot of those rugged areas, uh, the terrain, a lot of the maintenance uh, for the access roads hasn't been done for years. I mean, just driving around, you see a lot of vegetation overgrown on some of the lines. That would be normal work that a utility company would be responsible for. Uh, So a lot of that wasn't done. That's caused significant problems at trying to restore the grid, and it's taken longer than it should. One of the questions I have is when we've been out on the island, when we've been in Atillo or even in, in Toabaja, which is not that far from San Juan, there were people who haven't had power for two months, and they are frustrated, and they are hot. What do you say to them about when they might have power back? Nobody wants to get the power on quicker uh, than me and my team and PREPA and everybody who's doing this mission. That The fact is the challenges are just extraordinary with doing this. I mean, not only the terrain uh, causes this issue, the material, getting people in here, um, it, it just is one of the most challenging missions that we've really faced. I've been in many deployments, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, but this, these are Americans, and the, this is important to get the power back onto them. You said it. They are Americans. Do you think they're being treated the way mainland Americans are, would be treated in a similar situation? I absolutely think so. I mean, we have brought in more generators to Puerto Rico than any other uh, disaster mission uh, the Corps has done. So uh, more than Sandy, more than Katrina, more than in Texas, more than in Florida, uh, just doing that mission alone. And it continues to increase. Of course, when the lights are off, it, it can't be fast enough. You know, we, we know that. But I think the when you look at the numbers and you look at the response, certainly from uh, the Corps of Engineers side of it, I think you can see that our response has far exceeded other responses. That was Colonel John Lloyd speaking with me back in November 2017. As of June 19, 2018, power generation is back to 95.2% across Puerto Rico. When the island will be back to 100% is still unclear, almost a year after Hurricane Maria hit. 
even in the midst of disaster, there can be an upside. There aren't many places you can go in Puerto Rico right now without hearing that sound, the hum of diesel generators. Residents and the government are spending hundreds or even thousands of dollars a week on fuel. That, plus the grindingly slow restoration of the electrical grid, have people thinking about alternatives. Prior to Maria, people were turning to solar basically for, uh, you know, to, to save money. Electricity costs here in Puerto Rico are, are expensive. That's Alejandro Uriarte. He runs New Energy, a solar design and installation company based in San Juan. One kilowatt hour of solar-powered energy here costs around six cents. From the grid, it's closer to 33 cents. But post-Maria, the demand for solar isn't about money, but power. They just want something to power their home, especially the fridge, a couple of fans, lights, the basic necessities. But it's not cheap, especially on an island that has been in a recession for a decade. A system will cost you around $15,000. And if you're going to add storage or a battery to that, it can add on another $10,000. Uriarte says that new energy has gotten as many orders since Maria as it would in a typical year. And the requests are split 50-50 between businesses and homeowners. Across town, one of those batteries to store solar power is being installed. Uh, My name is Jose Trinidad. I am an electrical engineer for new energy. Normally, an installation takes about three days. But right now? The materials here in Puerto Rico are are very scarce. They are not available as they do before. Which is slowing down the process. Even with the delays, the orders keep coming in. But when I ask Trinidad if PREPA, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, supports solar? (laughs) That's a good question. It's not a no exactly, but more people installing their own solar systems may mean less revenue for PREPA. So if it affects your economy or your market, you will try to put some things in in our way in order to, to slow you down. Still, PREPA has a long way to go to fix the traditional grid, which is a business opportunity, albeit a slightly uncomfortable one, for solar entrepreneurs like Alejandro Uriarte. This change to solar was going to happen, but the hurricane just accelerated what, what was coming anyway. However Puerto Rico moves forward with power, one of the major issues is investment in the island and finding the right people to stick with Puerto Rico through its physical and economic recovery. In February, I sat down with Manuel Laboy, Secretary of Puerto Rico's Department of Economic Development and Commerce. He was in New York for an Invest in Puerto Rico event, and I asked him about the pitch he's making to investors, given both the storm and the island's debt crisis. When it comes down to the debt restructuring, uh, the truth of the matter is that last year we filed for uh, Title III under PROMESA. And we were concerned the initially. The law that essentially allows you to, exactly, to declare bankruptcy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, some people thought that that was going to create sort of uncertainty. But on the contrary, the fact that now we have an orderly process, that prov- you know, in itself provides certainty. The, actually, the fiscal plan includes what we call structural reforms. Uh, those are going to be the basis for our future growth. No matter whether we uh, believe that tourism has to be forefront or manufacturing or technology or whatever, 
the it is essential to have a strong foundation. Do structural reforms include pension cuts? Mm, well, that is a very uh, sensitive matter, right? Um, the PROMESA law states that we need to achieve a sustainable, adequate pension plan. Yeah. And that is part of the discussion that we need to have. We need to make sure that we can honor previous commitments, and at the same time, we need to be fiscally responsible. And that is going to require you know, certain negotiations and, and, and certain things. Uh, I cannot jump into a conclusion that it will be essentially a cut, but changes need to be made. Now, the nature of those changes are part of the things that we need to figure, and, and we are in the process of doing that. Certain things were included in the fiscal plan, but it is an ongoing process, uh, and we need to make sure that it's a fair, a fair system that is fair for previous uh, uh, people, uh, and of course, you know, upcoming, uh, uh, you know, governmental uh, employees that need to receive a fair, a fair treatment. So we need to balance all this interest. There are some things in this plan, and I, and I want to kind of walk through them because they're key tax issues. For example, 100% exemption from income taxes on all dividends, interest, and capital gains for bona fide residents on income made in Puerto Rico. It sounds to me like looking at some of these changes, you all are kind to trying to create um, a tax haven or tax breaks for people to come to the island. Is that right? I understand uh, why some people might think that, but it's not really the, the reality of it. No? Um, a tax haven, by definition, is that, you know, you are avoiding taxes. Yeah. And uh, by by the virtue of that, it doesn't translate into economic activity or economic development or the creation of jobs or so forth. In the case of Puerto Rico, we are using certain tools like tax incentives or tax credits or other economic incentives to really actually incentivize, because that's precisely, you know, the whole point, incentivize a number of activities that are supplementary to the decision of going to Puerto Rico based on other other factors, our other core competencies and, and, and assets that we, that we have in the island. So I'll give you an example. In the case of this uh, Act 22, which is the one that offers a 0% for all passive income and distributions, um, it is based on the fact that it's completely new money. So an individual will, you know, with a high net worth, mm -hmm. probably will not consider Puerto Rico to become a residence for, for many reasons, you know. Uh, and so it is like you come to Puerto Rico, otherwise you will not have made that decision, uh, and you will need to invest because in order to receive that um, benefit, you need to invest, you know, you and I are talking about these big picture plans for sort of revitalization and an economic overhaul. And yet I wonder, how do you do that when basic things like electricity are still so unreliable? Yeah, that's a, another great observation. Um, so I don't want to sound disrespectful, but, you know, four or five months after the hurricane to be at 80 percent power is really remarkable. It was zero. It was nothing. There's another 20% of the population that doesn't have power, and we're doing everything that we can to expedite the process. And for me, it is unacceptable that people, some people don't have power. When you are pitching to private investors, are, are you 
just talking to American private investors or, or international investors as well? We're talking to everybody, basically. Certainly U.S. investors, because we're part of the U.S., is our natural pitch. Uh, but on the, you know, on the other hand, uh, as any other state or territory does, we want to diversify the source of funding uh, from private investors. Right now, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we have companies from Germany in the aerospace industry, like Lufthansa. Mm-hmm. We have three, four, maybe five companies, huge companies in the island, in the manufacturing sector, medical devices and pharmaceutical. We have uh, investors from Mexico. You know, they, they are in the telecommunications uh, sector. They are in the pharmaceutical sector. They are in the concrete business. Uh, we have investments from Colombia. We have investments from Spain. I mean, we, we are highly kind of diversified, but of course, our main source uh, of funding has always been the U.S. mainland-based investors. But the pitch right now uh, is basically um, to uh, U.S. investors because um, we want to leverage you know, what's happening on the federal front with the private sector front. Manuel Leboy, Secretary of the Department of Economic Development and Commerce, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Earlier in the show, you heard a story about housing in Puerto Rico. Another huge issue is education. The school system is in the middle of a massive reorganization. It involves the closure of more than 200 public schools, combining resources, and introducing charter schools and vouchers. Yes, it's about the hurricane, but also so much more than that. Here's a story from April. It's pretty normal to have a bunch of teachers, parents, and kids outside an elementary school at 7.45 in the morning. Generally, though, you don't see a seven-year-old chanting with a protest sign. They're saying, I want a school that's open. And they're referring to John F. Kennedy Elementary School in Toa Baja, about 15 miles outside San Juan. JFK is one of 280 public schools slated to close over the summer. That's roughly a third of the island's schools. Enrollment has dropped across Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria. The Education Department says it's down by 38,000 students since May. Uria Vargas sends her daughter Gabriela to JFK. She's nine, and she's a special ed student. If the school closes, Vargas says, the next school closest to them is 30 minutes away. Even though she has a car, she says getting there would be really difficult and it would really affect them. What the island's government wants to do is consolidate schools, some with declining enrollment and some with lower test scores or buildings in bad shape. Teachers' unions are fighting the closures and a plan from the governor that would allow for charter school and voucher pilot programs starting in 2019. JFK Elementary's building has a pretty courtyard and cheerful decorations. Online records show the school's test scores need work and that the number of students here has declined in the past few years as the island suffered its debt crisis. But teachers argue that the numbers are bouncing back, even as they note that the principal left for the mainland after Maria. Pirette Hidalgo's second-grade classroom is decorated with drawings of Spider-Man. The room's door shows him climbing through a city at night. Okay. Cada una de las láminas que usted tiene, muéstrelas. 
Inside, 15 students sit in little groups learning about important historical sites in Puerto Rico. But there's a sign in the classroom that underscores how tense things are right now. It reads, education is not for sale. The whole situation feels raw, like no one trusts each other. And up front, on the whiteboard, it says, Julia Kelleher wants to close my school. Kelleher is the Secretary of Education. She worked as a consultant to Puerto Rico schools for about a decade, but only started in this job last year. She says the closure plan could save $150 million. She's both ambitious and the target of a lot of anger. In protests like the one at JFK, people chant, Julia, go home. I asked Kelleher why she thinks things have gotten so nasty. I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. People are being confronted with a reality that has been hidden for the last 10 to 15 years. The debt crisis and $73 billion didn't just pop up, right? So someone coming in to do the things and being honest and transparent about the why and making those tough decisions doesn't make it hurt any less. And then, of course, in the middle of all of this are the kids. Many went through the storm or lost homes. JFK's social worker, Maria de Lourdes Torres, says they're already traumatized. She says she lost her voice because of the stress. And the entire government isn't visualizing the specific experience of the children, the need of the children. A loss, another loss. These are a lot of losses at one time. They're mourning. And the kids need to recover. I mean, our kids lost everything. What else can I say? You heard a little bit of Puerto Rico's Secretary of Education, Julia Kelleher, in that piece. We spoke for a while, and she told me that her focus isn't on how many schools are closing, but on developing a system for the changing needs of Puerto Rico. So how we came up with this list really had much more to do with understanding what the the negative patterns or the ineffective patterns of resource utilization were, what we think the system should be, and to try to identify sort of what's the right size. Now, bearing in mind the unique geography that characterizes Puerto Rico, it's not that easy to just go, you know, up and down a mountain. So that's that's one thing. But then we looked at a, a series of other criteria. There are some buildings that are so old and have a physical plant that is so deteriorated that it would cost more to try and repair it than to just try to find a new placement for the student. We have schools where you don't have a full faculty. So then we looked at that, that at, a, at a wide range of factors. And once we knew how many we should have, then we looked at the number of schools in each of those municipalities and said, how could they be reorganized? So you see on the list schools that have, meet those criteria, but you also see schools on the list that are necessary to consolidate with others in order to right-size the system. Is New Orleans the model? I've noticed you tweet about it. Obviously, a lot of people like to talk about the recovery district. Is that the model? I don't think so. We mirror more a D.C. model than anything else, except D.C. didn't have a hurricane. Right. They had a fiscal oversight board. They, they decentralized their system and broke up a unitary system, created a state office of education, put in a new chancellor, and started to implement reform. So we look more like that. I think the charter environment here is a lot different than it was in New Orleans. We opened up all our schools. I mean, probably 75% of the schools were open by mid-November. New Orleans was a place where four months later, they got five schools open. Everyone had left. We weren't in that situation. And, and I also think we're not a place where stateside charters can just sort of fly in and pop up a shop, right? It doesn't really work that way. When you bring up D.C., actually, you raise some interesting points. Who 
in your mind, will be the chartering authority? Is it a national brand like Kip, or is it you know a series of kind of homegrown folks who will be running those schools? Uh, it could be both. I think that a place like Kip is going to want to consider. Uh, whether this is a good fit for them. And so if the facilities issue isn't um, one that can be worked out or they don't have enough flexibility or the funding doesn't quite match, then, then it's, not, it's not likely to be you know, successful. So while I think they could come, it was great to hear that they have sort of this set of things that's important to them. We're looking for support from um, you know, foundations that would be interested in supporting this work. We want to work with people who've been effective um, standing up schools. But there's also a lot of sort of local interest. We have a, some community organizations Organizations that have done great things with their kids and want to solidify that and not just deal with them, you know, before school and after school. They want to see if they can run the whole day. So the previous education law talked a lot about these schools of the community. And it was a concept that we never really sort of wound up implementing with Fidelity. We talked about it, but they really had no control. They had no money. They, the conditions were poor. The, dis, the principals didn't make any decisions. And what we're actually going to be able to accomplish with the education reform bill is allowing that concept to actually flourish. And, and it's consistent with what is important to the local culture. Secretary Kelleher, thank you. My pleasure. Outside the school gates, there's another story to tell about the ripple effect of Hurricane Maria. Mi nombre es José Ortiz. Soy empleado de Tabahuita por muchos años. Estaba para 31 años aquí. I'm 70. <laughs> for 31 years, José Ortiz and his wife Maggie have owned the bright green food truck that sits in the school parking lot ready to serve students, teachers, and parents. Everything from pizza to steaming hot cups of coffee. Okay, toma, mami. Lo que tengo adentro es una estufa para hacer pizza y eso, y el café. Tengo una friedora para frir los pastelillos. What sells the best? What, what, what's the favorite thing that people like the most? Here, el pastelillo. That's homemade. Lo hace mi esposo. Homemade. That's the best. That's the best? Right. Mami. Even past students of John F. Kennedy Elementary, who are all grown up now, come back for the pastelillos Maggie makes. In between customers, I ask Ortiz what would happen to his business if the school closes. I hope to God they won't close it, he tells us. It would affect the neighborhood a lot. The kids, who he calls nenes or dolls, would feel it the most. He's wearing a T-shirt that says, we are all JFK, by the way. Ortiz says his truck has always been around. The parents trust him. He helps the kids who are a few cents short to make sure none of them are ever hungry. And if the school closes, he says it'll be a hard hit on this community. Gracias. The island's recovery from Hurricane Maria has the potential to reshape it. And for Governor Ricardo Rosseo, that's a positive. Rosseo has a very specific vision for where he wants Puerto Rico to go. I sat down with the governor in his office in San Juan in April. Incidentally, it was the day of an island-wide blackout, and you can just make out the hum of generators behind us. I asked him what the best model for spending the new HUD money is, given that so many people on the island live in informal housing. One of the opportunities that I think we have is to start eradicating that informal housing uh, component. Uh, start pushing folks into safe, you know, formal ownership. Uh, how, how do we do it? It, it depends on, on where we're at at the island. 
As you know, we, we have uh, had a, a significant uh, decrease in population in the past uh, couple of decades, and that has lent itself for uh, you know, a lot of houses to be available or to be owned by the bank. So I think there is an opportunity to leverage uh, in the short run that uh, set of houses. And then the second component of it is uh, implementing what uh, we want uh, to have are the most robust uh, construction codes in the nation. Uh, make sure that we're wary, uh, ready uh, for another uh, hurricane, Category 5, God forbid, but uh, make sure that, that we're wary, uh, uh, ready for it. But the code was updated in 2011. Um, it, it seems to me that enforcement of that might actually do the trick as opposed to just creating another code. Well, there's two. You're, you're correct. There's the enforcement uh, bit of it, uh, but there's also the uh, there's also been significant uh, changes, believe it or not, uh, from from that date uh, onwards. But but uh, make no mistake about it, enforcing this and, and using this whole. Um, opportunity with the CDBG funding uh, to make sure that uh, new housing gets built to code, that uh, uh, you know, we have the proper structures to enforce and to execute. Those are going to be critical components. You know how emotional this is. Does that mean going to someone who, say, has lived in informal housing for 20 years and say, you have to go? It's time to go. You know, it's not safe. It's not if, but when another a catastrophic event like this is going to happen, and it's just not worth it. And if we do have the opportunity uh, to use these funds effectively and transparently, why not uh, take this opportunity to make this transition? I mean, I, I, I would understand in the past when uh, resources were not there to make this, this change, uh, but right now it would be a shame if we, don't, if we don't do it. Right now, parents, many teachers, are very angry at you. They're angry at the Secretary of Education about the closures of schools. How do you go forward and have their trust when they think, I I want my kid to go to her school in the morning, I don't understand what's happening? Listen, nobody wants to go to a community and say your your school is closing down. Uh, But it is not a fiscal consideration. It is uh, education consideration. In the past decade, uh, over 43% of our student population has decreased. Uh, We have scattered teachers all over the map we have, most of our schools don't have a full faculty. The objective with, with our uh, program is that we can consolidate those resources, have economies of scale, and uh, we want to give everybody uh, the access to a full faculty so that they can get better, uh, better education. I want to talk about the bond situation a little bit. You all have been forecasting actually a, a better return than the oversight board thought you could make before, maybe some 40 cents on the dollar compared to 25 cents on the dollar. How's that possible? Well, our job right now is not to forecast what, uh, you know, what the bondholders will receive. Or, or that's going to be a Title III uh, consideration, uh, with, again, restructuring court. Uh, our objective is uh, to establish a fiscal plan that uh, has, you know, fiscal measures, uh, but that ha- also has economic growth, uh, structural reforms. Uh, we feel we have done that. Puerto Rico is reducing their budget more than any other state has done in uh, the recent modern history of the United States. Uh, within the next five years, we're essentially reducing anywhere from, uh, uh, you know, almost a fourth of, of our budget, of our expenditures. And that includes health care, education, and, and uh, the size of, of government. So uh, we're doing our part, and then uh, based on that, our fiscal plan has a debt uh, sustainability model. 
And based on that is where uh, some of the, those calculations come along. Because you're sort of in this delicate place, right? A lot of federal money and some private money is coming into the island. At the same time, you don't want to be in a position where taxpayer money that is intended for rebuilding is going to creditors. And, you know, that obviously can't happen directly, but, but it's an uncomfortable dance. How do you make sure that that is what happened, that the rebuilding money goes to rebuilding and not to, to pay off bondholders? Well, we have a rebuilding authority, all right? It doesn't go through our, through our budget. It's, it's going to, uh, uh, to be very transparent, very clear, and, I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, the administration's position, uh, federal administration's position, and, and, and most uh, legislatures are that this money should not be used uh, uh, to pay bondholders. That's, that's obviously my position. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, a disaster recovery uh, effort, and we'll have transparency as to what the projects are being used. And, uh, but it, that would it, mean audited financials for everything, wouldn't it? it that would mean uh, audited financials for, for the government, uh, of course. Uh, but then uh, a, a set of unprecedented controls that has been placed uh, in collaboration with the federal government for our um, uh, uh, revitalization authorities. I had Secretary LeBoy on my show when you all were in New York uh, speaking to the investment conference. And one of the things he and I talked about uh, were pensions. And I know that you have been... Is it, is it safe to say in a bit of opposition to the oversight board about how big those pension cuts should be? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there, there's a phil- philosophical divide. I think we've, we've, uh, we've established that. Um, <laughs> for us, uh, making sure that uh, you know, pension recipients uh, get, get their share, uh, it, it's, it's, it's of the utmost importance. It is our view that uh, they are the most vulnerable uh, of individuals in Puerto Rico. They would go under the poverty line if, if this gets uh, executed, many of them anyways. Um, and it has a, a negative impact on the economy as well. In this recovery, both in the near term and thinking about the future, who is in charge? You are the governor. There is a financial oversight board. There is Judge Swain in New York City. And I go around the island and I ask people, and I ask some of the bondholders and their lawyers, who's in charge? And no one can tell me exactly. Well, because this is a novel setting, all right? On the fiscal limitation front, the oversight board has has a power on uh, title three uh, the uh, and and of course lending and so forth. The judge has the final say on public policy. I have the, and the government of Puerto Rico have the final say. Now a lot of those things uh, intermingle with each other. My role though is uh, to make sure that we execute and that our powers, uh, you know, delegated to us by the people of Puerto Rico to design public policy and, and to implement it, are not uh, relegated. Uh, I am confident that, you know, with the resiliency, the war with all of the people of Puerto Rico, with the resources that we now have uh, to rebuild Puerto Rico, uh, you know, we'll be talking about this recovery in five years as, a, as one that was not only a successful one, but that actually enabled Puerto Rico to uh, uh, correct uh, its, its path on the economic front, on the fiscal front, and uh, uh, make this for a better society. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you so much. You can listen back to all our Puerto Rico coverage from November 2017 and this past April. Just go to Marketplace.org and search for Economics of Disaster. And that is it for this Marketplace weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balladon-Rosen, Paulina Velasco, and Eliza Mills, with special help on our Puerto Rico coverage from Ronald Perez and Erica Romero. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Jake Gorski and Charlton Thorpe engineered our Puerto Rico specials. Naren Rao composed our theme music. 
Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.